Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of August 2nd, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. In this week's Gospel portion, Jesus gives thanks for the bread and fish and then tells his disciples to feed the hungry crowd. In our day, we often overlook the importance of food in the Bible. Reverend David Pelegi reminds us that food is an essential part of biblical worship. Our Sharing Table Fellowship builds Jesus-centered communities of compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. For those of you following along with the Wednesday Bible study, this week we will pause in Deuteronomy to share a talk Aaron Imey gave on Tisha B'Av. On the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, Jews around the world remember and mourn the destruction of both temples. Aaron looks at this day of mourning and repentance and has us consider how unholy behavior affects our relationship with God. Look for the lecture in our podcast feed later this week. Now, on to the lectionary readings. The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 145, a psalm of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. For I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fail and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. The word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 6, or chapter 9, sorry, verses 1 to 6. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing with me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, 
according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for a reading of the gospel. The passage today is from Matthew chapter 14. Starting in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus came out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And, he said to, and they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. The Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to come and to be in our midst and to be our teacher. Just as you taught Moses on Sinai, we pray that uh, your spirit, the spirit of your son, will teach your people. Lord, we want to hear your word. We want to respond. We want to be obedient. Lord, we pray that as a result, we will deepen our discipleship and understand something uh, better of who you are and of your great love and care for each one of us. Again, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we um, spoke uh, about a parable, and in particular, we spoke about the parable of the mustard seed. And one of the points that we made uh, last week was really how important uh, it is to um, pay attention to the context of the scripture, to pay attention uh, not only to what we call the Old Testament, 
but of course to the language, to the geography, to the flora and fauna, because all of these are important. And oftentimes in the church or um, in Christian circles, we will easily dismiss what we think is material, we will dismiss what we think is earthly, and we will say to ourselves, what we desire is the spiritual, what we want is the theological, what we want is the meat of the word, not the milk. This is a form of Gnosticism, and this is a form of Gnosticism, Christian Gnosticism, which uh, has no regard for history or has no regard for the uh, context, historical, uh, geographical context of the scripture. And so we ignore things such as geography at our peril because it's in the geography. It's in the way that people live their everyday lives. It's in the history It's in nature, flora, fauna, the weather, agricultural methods that God overwhelmingly reveals himself to us. And I think today's passage, story, a very familiar story, the feeding of the 5,000, it's in all four gospels. It's a very good example. It's a very good example of uh, how many times Again, we overlook what we think is not important, yet those are the very things which might be essential. And so I'd just like to start with something simpler and go to something a little more complex. And the simple here is location. Location, location, location. It is important. And the Bible, the New Testament, wants us to know, yes, in many of the Gospels, I'm not sure, I think it's three out of the four, that Jesus is with these 5,000 people. He is there at a time of great personal loss and great personal uh, stress. He's under, uh, he's grieving for his um, cousin, John the Baptist, who was murdered in a very wicked and unrighteous way or or murdered for a very uh, unrighteous reason. And it's in the midst of this place where the crowd is following him, yes, that he's going to perform this miracle. The geographical context is that the Bible in our passage, at least in Matthew, calls it a deserted place. In Greek, the word is eromos. Eromos is the same as midbar in Hebrew. It means a desert or it means a uninhabited grazing place. It might, it might mean a desert like you see in the Sahara or the Sinai or it could just be a place that's deserted and there's no um, villages or cities in the area. It doesn't matter exactly how we define this because basically there are no resources around to feed the 5,000. There are no strip malls. Yes, Amazon can't deliver. They can't deliver. They don't have same-day delivery, much less same-week delivery. 
There is um, yeah, no, no stores. There's no place to buy food for so many people. It's a deserted place. And we read so often, yes, it, we read so often that God works on behalf of his people and does miracles on behalf of his people in the most unlikely places. Now, it is certainly very easy to trust God or easier to trust God when there's great abundance. When we live in a land of shopping malls, yes, and uh, an Amazon service that can deliver by drone, or you can order a pizza uh, in an hour or two, when we live in a place where the economy is booming and the stock market is up, well, it's not quite so hard to trust God for provision or to trust him for supply. But if we live in a desert, can we actually trust him? Can we actually believe that God can provide for us in a place that is barren or desolate, a place without two-hour pizza delivery? or one-hour pizza delivery. Who wants to wait two hours for a pizza these days? So we shouldn't, by right, wait more than 20 or 30 minutes for the pizza to get here. And the answer to that is yes. Because God is, especially in the Hebrew Bible, but as well in the New Testament, God is always testing his people in the place where he wants to test them. Because Psalm 16 tells us God will test the righteous. Yes, he will allow us to see what we're made of, what's actually in our heart when uh, times get tough. But whether you're Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the children of Israel, Joshua, Jeremiah, Elijah, it doesn't matter, God sends his servants those who will take up responsibility in his house. And here we can include Jesus, John the Baptist, and Paul the Apostle. He sends them to the desert for a time of testing. And it's in that desert, yes, that um, these great men and women of God, yes, will have to uh, determine can we trust God to provide for us? And the best example of this, I believe, is Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a psalm that is not written about the Welsh countryside. I, we've said this before, but we can certainly say it again. It's worth repeating. Many of you have in your Bible a picture of some white fluffy sheep eating on a nice green hillside um, very green hillside, and underneath it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some of you may even have a, a poster like this in, in the church office. If you have a page like this in your Bible, tear it out. If you have a poster like this on the wall of the church, rip it down and tell the pastor that you will uh, replace it with something more biblical. Because Psalm 23 is written about the Judean desert a place get, that gets very little rain. And those first five verses, yes, are about the life of a shepherd and the most meager, yes, the most, uh, uh, the most difficult of all places. And what does a shepherd say? 
the shepherd who's in danger of getting lost, the shepherd who's in danger of uh, not finding food for uh, his sheep, the shepherd who's in, uh, actually in danger from wild animals, uh, in danger from, fl- for, from floods. The shepherd opens the psalm by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, he's in control, I shall lack nothing. Now that's amazing faith. That is faith. That when people can say and make that statement, yes, in the most, in the bleakest, yes, humanly speaking, of circumstances, it means the person has come to a place of trusting God. And the desert is always that place where God is going to test his people. Psalm 78, it's interesting that one of the ways the children of Israel rebel, it says in Psalm 78, I think it's verse 19, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God really provide for us in these circumstances? And so the location, yes, and the fact that uh, these 5,000, yes, people who are hungry, and Jesus has compassion on them, yes, and he's going to, in cooperation with his disciples, work a miracle. But the second context, and perhaps even more important for us, and again, it's something that we don't think is spiritual, but we need to sort of readjust the way we think. Think about the scripture and think about the subject. Now, it certainly is the subject Uh, it is certainly a favorite subject of millions and millions and even billions of people. But we don't think it's spiritual. And that subject is food. Yes, food is the subject. Now, when Jesus, sorry, when much of the Old Testament was written, they did not have money in the form of coins. You had pieces of silver or pieces of gold, but uh, coins you did not have. And if you wanted to talk, if you wanted imagery, yes, that expressed God's love or God's mercy or God's provision or God's care, you used food. Yes, and it's not only food, but especially a banquet. We mentioned Psalm 23 a minute ago. And Psalm 23 is, uh, one part is about the desert. The other part is about God bringing favor and blessing to his servant. And how does he do that? The servant says, David, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yes. Or what about the very famous passage that we sometimes, uh, the the scripture verse that we quote at Easter is uh, Isaiah 25. And here Isaiah 25 talks about God's uh, mercy, talks about a banquet, talks about Jerusalem, really. And it says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. And we could just go, uh, we could just put our finger in just about every place of the Bible uh, and find the, the, the mention of food, uh, banqueting, uh, especially as being uh, the sign of God's goodness. Sandy read for us earlier the very beautiful psalm, Psalm 145. It's one of my favorite psalms. It says, the Lord upholds all those who fall down and he lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes uh, of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So preparing food, you're giving food in particular, Preparing a banquet is something that's extremely important in Scripture, and we'll see even we'll see what the implications of of this in just a second. I think that another interesting thing that happens in this story is simply that Jesus is in the midst of training his disciples. And he says to those disciples, he said, the, the disciples say, they're hungry. And Jesus says, don't send them away. Instead, he says, you give them food. You give them food. And so what did the disciples do? They look around and they find out what food they have. Yes, this is the five loaves and the two fishes. And I think there's also something very uh, essential and even very beautiful here because it's a very beautiful picture of a relationship between a disciple and the Lord is that discipleship is a partnership. Especially it's uh, when we are um, uh, seeking the kingdom of heaven or about the business of the kingdom of heaven. When we're about that business, we give God what we have. Yes, and he multiplies it and always makes sure, and he will always make sure that it is enough. Those disciples did not hold back anything. And it's in their giving, yes, that God blessed and, uh, and ensured that there was, there was plenty for all. But what I want to focus on really is you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. What are the implications of that? Jesus is saying, you be the host. You be the provider. And I'd just like to remind us of a couple of things that's important about food, yes, and the, uh, and the role that food has. One is that food is essential to worship. There is really no worship in the Bible without food. Now, you might say that's not very spiritual, but that's the God of Israel, yes, and that's his son, Jesus, <clears throat> the Messiah, yes, who comes and sanctifies, who enters the world and sanctifies that which is material or uses that which is material for his purposes. Well, why do you say that? 
Well, but if you notice, all worship in the Hebrew Bible, which concerns itself with sacrifice, yes, it's all about food. Maybe you would even call it a barbecue uh, if you were not, uh, you were certainly not very reverent, yes. Um, the patriarchs offered sacrifices. There were sacrifices offered in the temple. It talks, it's, uh, it tells us that in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 15, it says that the purpose of the sanctuary was for the people of Israel to eat and drink and rejoice uh, before the Lord. Ezekiel says his altar, says the altar of God is a table. Yes, um, and altars were, altars were the place where bread or food was offered to God and God returned the food to his people. You may remember peace offerings in which an animal is sacrificed. That animal is sacrificed, some of the meat goes to the priest, some of the uh, meat would go to the congregation of Israel. And the congregation of Israel would eat and fellowship with each other, but also in, um, in the presence uh, of the Lord. The idea of offering food, especially an, especially an animal, yes, in Hebrew it's called a korban or a sacrifice. It comes from the word close. It's in that offering of food, or offering of something that's valuable, yes, that we actually come close to God. And so all worship in the Hebrew Bible centers around food. Even though, by the way, there's no temple today, the Jewish people have um, found substitutes for the temple. Uh, Jewish holidays become very important, and Jewish holidays also center, yes, around food. Some of the foods are commanded by the scripture, some of the foods have uh, come down and become a part of the holiday thanks to tradition, but still, that food is extremely, uh, extremely important. And what about the New Testament? Yes. What do we, what, where does that, where is that place of food in, in the New Testament? And especially when it comes to worship? It's here. 1 Corinthians 11 says, when we come together, we come together to do What? We come together to eat. We go to church in order to eat. People will say that's not very biblical. Actually, it is very biblical. It's very scriptural. And that's why it's, I personally, I think it's a scandal. And I, I can't understand it. Why many churches... Yes, may have communion once a month or once every six months or even once a year. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul assumes that the congregation in Corinth is coming together to come to the Lord's table. By the way, when we get to the new Jerusalem and we're in heaven, 
What kind of meal do we have? Does the banqueting stop? Does the feasting stop? No. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's still food is centering. Yes, it becomes an essential part of worship. Well, what does food do? Yes. What happens when you have this focus on food? Look, food becomes, or food is an essential part of culture. Is it not? Food creates community or, uh, or creates a culture. Culture uh, influences food. And many, many societies take their food very seriously. Do they not? Look at China. Singapore. Singapore is my favorite Chinese restaurant. People are serious about food. And they're serious about eating out. Yes. And food is important and their lives virtually center around it. And what about uh, the Arab world? It's also the same. You know, the culture of food and the importance of food is something much more than, uh, it's, it's not something that's keeping you alive. Yes, it becomes your culture. It becomes an identity. It's a little bit harder for us, for example, or for people in the United States because, you know, uh, if your lunch or your dinner is pulling up uh, to a drive-in at a fast food restaurant to get some Chick-fil-A or some McDonald's that you can eat in the car, well, I'm not quite sure how that works. Although it also is a culture and it also is an identity. Maybe a poor one, but an identity nonetheless. So food creates, yes, it creates a community. The Eucharist creates a community. It gives us an identity. So eating together from Corinthians chapter 10, a little bit later, we'll read in our liturgy the following. Though we are many, we are, we are one body because we all share what? And one bread. We all share in one loaf. That's giving us that identity. Telling us who we are. But what kind of a community should we be? And my dear friends, the community that we should be is a kingdom. It should be a community that, yes, reflects the life and teachings and even the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. In chapter 10 of Matthew, it, uh, uh, Jesus, tells us, Jesus tells us the following. He says, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like a teacher. And in the context of the story of this feeding of five, the 5,000, what did we read? We read that Jesus, out moved by compassion, yes, feeds the people. We read all through the gospel 
that Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, a little more indirectly in the, in the Gospel of John, we see that the, maybe the overwhelming characteristic of Jesus is that he is full of compassion and full of mercy. And that if we're, if we're creating or establishing a community, if the disciples are being told to do this community work, yes, then it has to be a society, it has to be a community, yes, of compassion, one of mercy, one of forgiveness. That has to be the nature of the community. It has to reflect, yes, the character of Jesus himself. And, um, and I think this is summed up beautifully, beautifully for us in Colossians. Where Colossians, it, uh, the writer to the Colossians says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now that community, which is a community that reflects Jesus or reflects, yes, the, the teachings of Jesus, that community isn't only, or that compassion isn't only for the folks in the holy club. It isn't only folks, only, it isn't only for people in our denomination. It can become very easy for us to create a very warm, even loving environment that pushes away outsiders. The table, the table should be a place of invitation. We should be inviting Yes, others to come into the community, even if they're not like us. We should be inviting those from on the margin, maybe those who are on the fringe of society, maybe those who might be somewhat difficult, maybe those who've made a mess of their lives. Those are the people we should invite in. And in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees say to Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? What are, why are you spending these time, your time with these people? And Jesus, yeah, connecting the table, connecting food to healing, says, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And isn't it interesting? Where is the place that Jesus, yes, puts Peter into a corner and then, yes, begins the process of reconciliation. It's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. But it's over a coal fire at a meal. Peter betrayed Jesus over a coal fire and now Jesus, yes, in the context of a meal, yes, because again, you know, in the context of, uh, in the context, <clears throat> again, of this, the context of, of, of the meal, Jesus 
yes, repairs that broken relationship. Jesus, by the way, doesn't wait for Peter to apologize. Jesus goes looking for Peter and confronts him in a very loving way. But it's done at the table over some fish, yes, and bread. Maybe remind us a little bit of the story, uh, today's gospel, today's gospel story. Look, human society, is it not from the fall, is broken, yes, it's diseased, it's afflicted by our own sin and self-deception, yes, we are led astray by Satan himself, and have you noticed where the fall had its, after bringing death into the world, the consequences of the fall were the biggest when it, came, when it comes to, still, it's still happening, when it comes to relationships between people. Yes, the community that God wanted to build through Adam and Eve fell apart, and it fell apart very quickly. It fell apart, it fell apart when in chapter four of Genesis, when Cain killed Abel. Later it fractures you know, when, uh, after the flood. Yes, with Noah and his family. Um, actually, I should start in chapter three because that's when relationships broke down between Adam and Eve. When uh, Adam blamed Eve and ultimately blamed God for, for the, the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Then in the next chapter, chapter four, relationships break down between brothers. And uh, after the flood, relationships break down between, Noah, between, the, uh, between families. And in chapter 11, relations, yes, break down between nations. And we have a mess. But what is, what is the message of the kingdom of heaven? The message of the kingdom of heaven is simply this that God is now breaking into human affairs, yes, through the work of, uh, through Jesus himself. And he's in the business of repairing relationships. He's in the business of bringing healing. He's in the business of bringing reconciliation. He's in the business of bringing forgiveness to people. He's in the business of helping us to overcome our addiction or to overcome our sin, maybe our sin of selfishness or self-centeredness, our sin of anxiety, our sin of self-hatred, whatever it may be, yes, the power of the Holy Spirit is bringing that healing and bringing restoration. And it happens in a community. Communities function at the table. They function and they center around food. Let us not ever be dismissive, yes, of that, of such a community. I think I need to go back and just finish something that uh, I didn't finish, so forgive me for the disorganization. Yes, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, when you invite someone to dinner, don't invite someone who's gonna pay you back. Invite those people who don't have the capacity or the ability to repay you. And so going back to the point that I was making previously, yes, the community, this kingdom of God community, this place where people are being healed and restored, this community of people who call Jesus king and who are uh, 
um, following him at, at all cost. Yes, this community has, yes, to have compassion on those who are outsiders. And the best example we have is from our second reading, where Paul, yes, talks about, you know, wanting to be cut off spiritually, wanting to be accursed for his people Israel. Now, Paul says that out of compassion and concern for his own people. Most, most of them were not believers. Many of them were his enemies. Some were opposing him. Some uh, were soon going to uh, have him arrested and uh, put under house arrest at Caesarea. But what does Paul say? You know, Paul um, it has so much compassion for them. And he, t- he is prepared to suffer the spiritual consequences like Moses was, you know, on behalf of his people. He wants them, yes, to come into the community of the Messiah. And he tells the community of the Messiah in chapter 11, especially the Gentiles, yes, this is implied, but I think it's there, they, we need to have mercy on these people. And Paul, by the way, will put that compassion into practice because he is, has collected a large sum of money to bring to Jerusalem. Yes? So the compassion for those is not only for those who are in our, who share our political beliefs or our, uh, our thoughts or our, the same ideas that we have, for example, about the state of Israel or the Arab-Israel conflict, or whether we're liberal or conservative, whether we're socialist or capitalist, the compassion is for, that compassion is, is certainly for everyone, not just for those who agree with us. And the community, yes, should be inviting all of those who want to come in should come in. Finally, I'd just like to remind you of how powerful meals are. And um, it's during a meal, or during meals in Acts chapter 2, that the church, yes, is instructed in the, the teaching of the apostles. Happens over food, yes, in the homes of the believers. It's over, it's at a meal when the bread is broken that uh, the two travelers on their road to Emmaus, you know, recognize Jesus. And when Jesus has to explain his death to his disciples, he does not give them a long theory about the atonement. He doesn't talk about this theory, that theory. How does he explain his death? His death is explained how? In a meal, a simple meal with bread and wine. And that meal, I hope and trust, still speaks to us, still speaks to us today. Because that meal, food, yes, the bread, the wine, the broken bread, yes, and the 
poured out wine, yes, reminds us, reveals to us, yes, over and over again, who Jesus is and why he came. It is very, very easy to forget. It's very easy to make Jesus into our own image or to to uh, turn Jesus into somebody who reflects the values of the culture, to turn Jesus into a poet, to turn him into a revolutionary, to turn him into a get-rich scheme, or to my great big buddy in the sky, to turn Jesus uh, into you know some kind of uh, uh, therapist you know who wants everyone to be happy, to be rich, and to be successful. We do this in every generation. But I believe it's by coming to the Lord's table, by having that meal, and by the way, repeating the pattern, yes, that's found not only um, here in Acts, and sorry, in Matthew, four, uh, Matthew 14, but found throughout the scripture that whenever the Eucharist is celebrated, bread is taken, yes, Bread is blessed. Bread is broken. The bread, the bread actually isn't blessed. Jesus thanks God. Will say thank you to God for the bread. We don't, and we understand from Jewish tradition, we don't bless the bread. We bless God for giving us the bread. But the bread, there's a blessing over the bread. The bread is broken. The bread is given. It's what Jesus did with the disciples. That's what happens at the so-called Last Supper. That's what happens at this table. Yes, at least twice or three times a week. Yes, it's a meal that reveals to us who Jesus is. It's that meal that creates and makes us into a community. It's that meal, yes, that's the center of our worship. Brothers and sisters, let us never, ever, I'm sure we won't, yes, uh, demean, yes, the role or the place of food. Father in heaven, thank you for using something that all of us like, something all of us need, something all of us understand. Thank you for using the material things of this world to teach us and to instruct us. And we just pray that, Lord, as we think about these things, that indeed that you will uh, deepen our discipleship and deepen our understanding of the Eucharist, deepen our understanding of who we are as a community, yes, and what our identity actually should be. And we pray, Lord, as people come into our fellowship and they come and meet with you and they come to this table, Lord, that you will bring healing to the brokenness of of, uh, the lives of many. In your mercy, Lord, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.